so when I uh, agreed to this assignment, um, I was thinking it's, it's the end of a busy week because of team camp and the preparation and stuff for that. But maybe I will um, share a bit of an overview of what I'll be doing at camp. And that was my intent. And then as I got down to look at how I might introduce it, I found my thoughts got captivated with something else. So um, certainly it has its roots in the, um, my message has its roots in the subject for next week, but I kind of followed a different thread, which uh, we'll see how we get on with that. But um, the group that um, Katie and I are working together in <coughs> next week is a, a group of teenagers and we have discovering God's will for our lives as the topic. Um, and with that as an introduction, the title I would give what my talk has ended up to be today is Trophies of Grace. And I may have used that title before, but it's a completely different message. I don't know whether each of us has ever considered ourselves as a trophy. A trophy is something that is presented um, to the winner and um, it's just a very precious thought that because of what the Lord Jesus did for us we are the product of his work and we are presented back to him as a trophy something that um, he has worked hard understatement to earn the right to have and we're a trophy of grace um, that's because we're, we're not being presented because we deserve to be presented to him. We're being presented to him entirely on the basis of his grace, his favour um, towards us who deserve only punishment. Um, in considering God's plan or God's will for our lives, you think, well, that's a great subject for young people. Clearly that's the intent next week. But I'm not a young person. And you kind of think, well, um, you know, is this potentially depressing? You know, you start to discover, you know, that was God's will for my life and I missed the boat. Um, not at all. I think one of the reasons why my subject has gained this title is wherever we are, um, but especially for older people, we look back at our lives and we retrospectively discover God's will in action for our lives. And it's amazing. Each of us has our own story to tell. And there's highs and there's lows. Um, and there's big, big why questions because things happen that we don't understand. But when looked at in the light of a God who loves us and has a plan for us, we look back and we can see how his plan has found, his will has found its fulfillment in our life so far. And I would just uh, encourage us to um, reflect on our experience of God's love personally so far. One of the exercises that we've done as a church here, we've done individually as a church, and we're gonna be encouraging the young people to do is write out their own testimony. I don't know whether you remember doing that with our course about walk across the room. And um, 
you know, you might find that, feel that you don't have a particularly compelling salvation story. But the fact is, if you've accepted the Lord Jesus as your saviour, then you have one. And we're going to be encouraging um, us all, um, the leaders in our group, as well as the teams themselves, to commit to paper, maybe just a few hundred words, a couple of hundred words, a statement as to what their experience is. And it's, uh, it's to get us thinking about the fact that God's plan for our life, God's will for our life, started um, long before we were even around and we're just discovering it and living it out. Um, I'd like us to read a passage of scripture which um, kind of is an illustration of what I'm talking about. It's about reflecting on a situation, looking for God's dealings with us in it, and seeing how his plan is unfolding, and writing it down. Um, let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 21. This is a pretty cool story uh, about uh, David before he was king. And uh, there's some dodgy aspects to this story because you think, is that the kind of behaviour you, you would expect from uh, an honest person? Um, but I guess he had his motives. But um, David, uh, um, maybe a little bit of background. David was um, initially a shepherd, the youngest of uh, several brothers. And um, Saul was king at the time. And because of Saul's disobedience and his change of direction from following God's will to his own will, God had abandoned Saul as king. So the people didn't know that yet, um, but God had already identified that this youth, this shepherd, David, was going to be king. And um, curiously, there had been a secret anointing by Samuel of David as king, probably in his late teens. And it was done in the presence of his family, that would be his parents and his siblings. And he was the youngest of the siblings. So kind of a curious thing. So this had happened in the past. Um, and then what happens is the very famous story of David and Goliath. And actually, I'm sure I knew this, but it hadn't occurred to me before, that as his brothers watched this young lad David go with the stone and the sling to um, fight the mighty Goliath, they had witnessed that he'd been anointed king already. And nobody knew that. Not unless they told him, but probably wouldn't have believed it anyway. So there was a different um, complexion, perhaps, on what these guys, his brothers, saw. And that they were um, hardened soldiers, <coughs> I imagine. So men who were accomplished fighters and brave in their own right, although not brave enough to <coughs> fight Goliath. So David goes, amazing story, he kills Goliath with one little stone and goes and chops his head off. Um, David is conscripted into Saul's army. Uh, he becomes the prince. He marries the king's daughter. Very cool thing to happen. Um, and Saul gets fiercely jealous. So Saul, I guess, in his heart knew that God had abandoned him and 
here was the apple of God's eye being um, nurtured and developed to be a mighty king and he was in the presence of Saul and Saul was fiercely jealous and decided I'm going to eradicate David and his family something else that I've not really quite twigged before but Saul wasn't only persecuting David but his family too we'll come to that in a second so David is on the run and this is where we start with our story in 1 Samuel 21 verse 10 that day David fled from Saul and went to Achish king of Gath but the servants of Achish said to him isn't this David the king of the land isn't he the one they sing about in their dances Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands <laughs> David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish king of Gath so he pretended to be insane in their presence and while he was in their hands he acted like a madman making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Achish said to his servants, Look at the man. He's insane. Why bring him to me? Am I the sort of... Am I short of madmen that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? A certain irony in the, in the story in that um, David went to, he was on the run, and um, he went to seek help. He had nothing. He, he shows up in a, um, a temple with a priest, and um, uh, Ahimelech is the priest's name, and he's probably got a small crew of, of followers with him, but they're starving. They've got no food. And this is the guy who just slain Goliath, and had been anointed king in secret. And not only does he not have any food, he hasn't even got a weapon. And he's a fighting man. So Ahimelech says, well, I can provide you with some bread, you and your men, so we get that point. Uh, and the only sword we've got is Goliath's sword. And uh, David says, well, is there a better sword than that? I'll have that. You can imagine it would be a massive thing. So David then um, leaves that place and goes to Gath. Gath was Goliath's hometown. How ironic for this um, anointed king on the run from the exiting king, going to the Philistine territory, the enemy territory, and he's carrying the sword of Goliath. Um, and what's he doing there? He's seeking um, friendship. He's seeking uh, a place of protection. Um, and of course he gets chased uh, when he realises that actually he can't do this discreetly that uh, the locals actually recognise who he is he can't hang around so he feigns insanity with um, slobbering in his mouth and stuff and of course the king thinks he's an idiot and just chases him away um, The, the prior place he'd been to, sorry, I was forgetting that place, it was the, the priest of Nob, the, the place where he went, and Ahimelech was the man's name. Um, he then leaves um, Gath, and he escapes to a place called the, the Cave of Adullam. And I, I, I imagine the clue is in the title, 
it's not a very grand place and it's a, it's a good place to hide. And if we read a bit further on, it says that his brothers and his father's household, they, found, they heard that he was there hiding in this cave and they went to accompany him. I hadn't realised that it wasn't just David that was on, his, on the run, but it was his brothers. And it says his father's household. And they weren't just visiting him to provide him with some um, uh, food and stuff. Because the next thing he has to do is to find a place of, um, of solace for them too. And he ends up taking them to a place called Moab, where they would be out of King Saul's reach. And it says that while he was in Adullam, he attracted all kinds of misfits in society. So there was his own family who somehow had been um, being targeted and needed to be exiled. There were those who were in distress or debt or discontented, and they all gathered around him. It reminds me of that Second World War film called The Dirty Dozen, um, where they hot they get together all the misfits who uh, weren't really good to serve in the in the army in fact they were in prison and they make an army out of it um, and you kind of have the sense that David's army as they gravitated towards him in this cave um, were all kinds of flavours of strange but nevertheless brave men now this is an amazing story isn't it just following that this happened to a real man and um, just amazing experience that he should find himself doing this this stuff and he pauses and he writes about it and we go to psalm 34 and my my point here is were trophies of grace in david's example um and he would be reflecting back i'm assuming this happened the, the psalm 34 i'm assuming he wrote it fairly shortly after but I think it's the product of him finding a quiet place and reflecting back on God's grace, the miracles that had happened that meant he was still alive, uh, the wonder of God's choice of him as king, um, the wonder of being able to fight Goliath single-handedly. All of these um, things were going through David's mind and he pauses and he writes about it. Let's read Psalm 34. Someone might be able to help me here. The, the, the title of the psalm, which I'm assuming is added by an expert, it says of David when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech, um, who drove him away. Whereas if you read the account in First uh, Samuel, it's Achish is the person that he feigned insanity before. So maybe he did it twice, I don't know. But the principle of what I'm describing still applies. So I see a sequence of themes through this psalm. Um, there are six of them, so look out for them. It's a sequence that flows. The first is worship. The second is confidence. The, the third is delighting in dependence on God. The, um, the fourth is inspiration from his own circumstances. And the fifth is triumph. And the final one is security. And for me, they just seem to follow through. Wouldn't it be great as we reflect on our own experiences of God's grace, where trophies of grace, if 
reflecting on all of that prompts us to worship. It gives us confidence. Um, it gives us a sense of how great it is to be able to depend on God. It's insp inspiring. And you'll see that David, from his own experiences, teaches other people. And it's triumphant. We have a great confidence for the future based on what we know God has done for us in the past. And that confidence in triumph gives us um, security. So let's read it. Psalm 34 verse 1. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. My soul will boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt him, his name, together. Those first three verses are all about God. And they're um, not necessarily about what he's done. They're about David's appreciation of who God is. And when we appreciate what God is, who God is, then our heart's response is worship. And it's not um, David uh, worshipping himself, uh, worshipping alone, I mean. It's about him um, sharing it with other people. I can imagine, I'll let my imagination run a little bit, he spent a lot of time working on a, on a psalm or a song or a, a hymn, and he finishes it, and then he goes and shares it with other people, and they... Um, they use it together to worship God. Um, when we recognise the hallmark of God's involvement in our lives so far, it's amazing. It teaches us of God's greatness, of his attention to detail, of his sovereignty, of his power. You've got your own story, so all of these things will result in us pausing for worship. Verse 4. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look at him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. Maybe that's a specific <coughs> response to David reflecting on how he managed to escape um, Achish, king of Gath, who um, was being told, this is the, the um, king in waiting. And in an amazing way, uh, David jumped to this strange um, tactic of, in, in, of feigning insanity and managed to escape from the king. And he would be reflecting on how that situation and all of the those prior to it had um, enabled him to escape and survive. And of course, he's acknowledging that it is um, God that has enabled him to do this. That's confidence. You know, I, I'm um, compelled at this point to pause and just think about that in our, in relation to our salvation. Um, if we don't know the Lord Jesus as our saviour, where is our confidence? Where is our confidence in what's going to happen next? 
when we look back in on our lives was it all just an accident if we if we don't have time or thoughts for god then that's the implication that what happens to me is just an accident of circumstances i think that's very hard to believe and for me i think it takes more faith to have that approach than to think that there is a design and there is something happening and these verses um i sought the lord and he answered me he delivered me from all my fears when we're worried about our circumstances and in in the worship service this morning we were focusing on god's forgiveness if we're worried about our forgiveness whether we have god's forgiveness then these verses direct us to pray i sought the lord and he answered me that's about prayer and he delivered me from all my fears if we haven't spoken to god about the concern we have for our sin then we need to do that and that's that's the christian gospel message and as david is supremely confident here so we can be that god will deliver us from all our fears and he can do that because the lord jesus came and he has taken the punishment for our sin as we were remembering um, in our worship service let's go to verse 8 and I've entitled 8, 9, and 10, Delightful Dependence. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord will lack no good thing. What an amazing um, list of... Um, promises about someone who's been in despair he didn't have a weapon he didn't have anywhere to go he was on the run he didn't have anything to eat and he's reflecting back on those circumstances and he just sees in a delightful way how God fulfilled every need that he had and isn't that our experience too it's our experience on two levels we were thinking about our salvation and we're totally dependent on him for our salvation. And he provides it comprehensively through what the Lord Jesus has done. But God provides everything we've got. So our food, our clothing, our health, our place to live. We might think we've developed it ourselves and earned it somehow. But it's in his grace that we find ourselves where we are. I think I'm learning... To, it's, um, all our lives are an ongoing story. So I just looking back, I'm learning that it's important to, to delight in dependence. We live in a, in a society where independence is what everyone wants. You know, I, I don't want to be dependent on anybody. Sometimes if we're amongst non-Christians and this topic comes up, well, you can believe that. And know if it's a crutch... That makes you feel good then that's lovely for you they might say in a patronizing kind of way well my christian faith is a crutch and that's because i need a crutch and i would argue that we all do and i'm not i'm not ashamed of that it's delightful to know our dependence in, in god and to know and see him fulfill it moving to um, verse 11 Come, my children, and listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. 
This is a, an experience, I don't think he's an old man, he might be, but I'm assuming this was fairly soon after his, uh, his experience. Um, regardless of whether it was soon after or later, um, this is a man who's reflecting on the trophy of grace that he is, and he's sharing it with other people, with his family. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek <coughs> peace and pursue it. I think these are wise, wise words from a wise man whose wisdom is a consequence of his own experience and dependence on God and his appreciation of God's real identity. A man who has been in a situation where the only thing he's got left is to trust in God and the consequence is that he shares that with the people around him, the young people, his children. Um, that's a, a real lesson to us parents that we need to share with our children our experience of Christian faith. You know, sometimes we, if we're challenged about why we believe what we believe, we default to um, theological arguments or Bible verses, very good things to do, but let's not overlook our own personal experience. There is a sense where I, um, in my own mind and, and experience, I'm the best evidence for God's love because in my little experience, he's transformed my life. And that's the same for each of us here, if we have accepted the Lord Jesus. So let's be inspired, not just by David's experience, but let's be inspired by our own experience of God's grace. And let's be vocal about it and um, share, share it with others. Verse 15, and we're moving on to triumph. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted, and save those who are crushed in spirit. A righteous man may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. That is a superb range of victorious statements. Um, you know, um, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and save those who are crushed in spirit. Our hearts get broken. That's part of being uh, a human being in a fallen world. And um, the Lord Jesus teaches over and over again to his disciples that, you know, because you're a Christian, it doesn't exempt you from trouble. The world around us has been damaged by sin. And that sin invades every aspect of life. But um, David, because of his his experience of God achieving victory through difficult circumstances has this 
perceptual perspective on all that's going around, going on around him. It's a perspective of triumph. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, isn't that a great perspective to have when we face difficulties, things we can't understand? And my encouragement is look back on how God's proven um, his grace in our own experience in the past and use it to give us that triumphant orientation as we anticipate the future. Verse 20, and this is about security. He protects all, um, he protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. Evil will slay the wicked. The foes of the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems his servants. Not one will be condemned who takes refuge in him. It's about being secure in the future. It's interesting how there is a flow in the psalm of history to present to future. And it's about confidence based on facts of the past. And it's about inspiration, a triumphant orientation and security for the future. This is the God that has saved us and the God who loves us. And it's amazing. So again, we're trophies of grace. We're discovering whatever age we are, we're discovering God's will for us. And the discovery process, it happens in his word, but it happens, I would appeal to you, by reflection on our experience of it in the past. And read Psalm 34 yourself. You might, you might pull out your own key words, um, but worship, confidence, delightful dependence, inspiration, triumphant and security. Let's go to First Peter just for one final reading. First Peter three. I like to reflect on the circumstances which led whoever wrote what we're reading in the Bible to write what they wrote. If you get me just. Um, I think Peter was reading Psalm thirty four. And as he was reading Psalm 34, he had other things going on and he applied certain parts of Psalm 34 to the message he was delivering to people in churches of God. So let's go to verse 8 of 1 Peter 3. Finally, all of you, live in harmony with one another, be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you are called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For, and then he quotes some verses from Psalm 34. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil to do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, 
set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. Now I can explain where my message came from. Uh, I started with uh, 1 Peter 3 and 15, in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. That's a key verse for us next week. And I'm, it's a very famous verse, and I'm thinking, wonder what the context of that verse is. So you read a little bit before it, and you get Peter quoting Psalm 34. And then you go to Psalm 34, and you see the connection with um, him feigning insanity, insanity at Gath. And, you know, as a consequence, my mind goes in different directions. But setting apart Christ as Lord in our hearts, I think, is about going through that process that um, David did. It's, of course, focused on God's word, but it's about understanding God's movement in our own lives so far and in the future. And it's recognising his lordship. It's recognising the delightful dependence that we need to have in him. It's about being confident. Um, and it's about making our commitments to him. It's about sharing our experiences, our own life's experiences of God's grace with other people so they can also be inspired by this great God that we serve. I've said this before, but it's, uh, it's key. Someone who has Christ set apart as Lord in their life lives provocatively. That means that we're different. We'll have different values, we'll have different behaviours, we'll have different priorities, and that causes people to ask questions. So why, why do you have this hope? Why do you believe that? Why are you so confident in the future? Um, why do you delight to worship? And Peter's saying that when we have Christ set apart as Lord, then we'll be ready to answer those questions. And he asks us to do it with gentleness and respect. Again, this verse, we often think about, right, we must have our, I don't know whether this is an Emerson expression or you, you understand it, you have our ducks in a row. It means, oh, someone's going to ask me about baptism, you know, I need this, that and the other scripture lined up so I can explain it to him and I'll do it with gentleness and respect. That's true, that's important. But I would put it to us, based on our study today, that another key element of explaining the hope that is within us is being prepared to talk about our own experience and of course our own experience supported by God's word it can't be contradictory to God's word so as we um, explore God's will for us we inevitably go into our past we think about the future we think about the present we think about the future we celebrate the wonder of his grace in all of those different facets and as we will be encouraging each other to do in this next week of camp we write it down um, I, we don't do enough of that I think those of us who have sermons to deliver write stuff down but maybe we should just do it um, as an exercise in enjoying 
what God has done for us. And in the process, this process is what is part of Peter's instruction to set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts and uh, so live provocatively. Shall we pray?